has said is not only true, even things we've never experienced before, things we've never seen, like the end of time, God abruptly interrupting history, there being a shout, the sound of a trumpet, the skies rolling back as a scroll, and the Lord that we've been longing to see face to face, our Savior, our God, returning again to this earth as we rise to meet Him in the air. We often hear people describe that and perhaps we even see the way that Scripture speaks of that great and glorious day. And on the one hand, we as disciples of Jesus say, God, you're great. And we believe that what you say will come to pass. Yet, on the other hand, we sometimes struggle. And I think the reason we sometimes struggle to believe that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will return again one day is because some time has passed. That seems to be not only a problem now, but a problem in the time of the apostles, those who were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus and who, by God's inspiration, were writing the books that we now have in the New Testament. We're going to be spending some time tonight in the first 13 verses of 2 Peter chapter 3, and you'll note that in verses 3 and 4 of that particular chapter, there were people then who were mocking this that Jesus was actually going to return. And we're told that the reason they were mocking this idea is because 25 to 30 years had passed. They saw the sun rise and set. Days and months and years pass. And according to what Peter describes here, they mocked the idea that Christ would return again because in verse 4, that's continued to be preached and, and stated and yet according to their uh, the appearance of things and their observation, 2 Peter 3, 4, they were saying all continues just as it was from the very beginning of creation. You talk about Jesus coming back. You even mention the fact, the very end of Scripture in Revelation 22, John says he's going to come quickly. And we see that language and we know that that's at the heart of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. When we stand by the gravesides of those who've gone on before us. We will often read from passages in First and Second Thessalonians or in Revelation or perhaps what the Lord himself said on a number of occasions about the reality of his return. And yet, even though we're disciples of Jesus and we take God at his word, it's sometimes difficult for us, or at least for me, to focus on that reality. That unless death comes first, the Lord will return. And we don't know when that's going to happen we believe firmly that it will happen. And we live in an age of skepticism where I think a lot of people in the world when discussions about the return of Jesus, their mind goes to the false Christ who tried to predict when that would happen, who formed cults and ideas and practices or perhaps even theological discussions about what to be like or what that day will be like or is there a literal millennium or not and these are the kinds of questions that people wrestle with and I'm afraid that sometimes and all of that discussion and digression and debate that we sometimes lose focus on what matters the most and that is that our God's work while complete with regard to his revelation complete with regard to what it is we do when we respond to God's grace through faith According to what Revelation 2 and 3 describes, Colossians 1, 15 through 20 describe, our Savior is still the Lord. He's still the head of the church. He still walks among those seven golden lampstands, being aware of what's happening 
in every congregation of his people. And there will come a time that he will stop history. He will step back into the atmosphere that we can observe. We will see him return in glory with the angels and with flaming fire. And those who are dead in Christ will rise first and meet him in the air. And we'll see what's described in Matthew 25, 31 through 46, unfold on that day of judgment when Christ the Lamb of God sits on the throne and separates the sheep on the right from the goats on the left. And, and so we know that factually. And tonight we might even be offended with the idea that some Christians might not trust the promise that Christ will return again. But I'm not talking about intellectual knowledge. I'm not talking about Bible trivia or believing that the, what the Bible says is true. I'm asking the question, how can I live in light of the reality that Christ will return? How can I live in faith knowing that whether I'm experiencing trials in life or success in life, that our God has not abandoned us? And that the reason for that delay, the delay in His coming, as we're going to see in 2 Peter chapter 3 tonight, is not because God's somehow given up on us or he's somehow forgotten about this promise he's made, but this is actually a demonstration of God's character, his righteousness, his justice, his grace, his longing that all people everywhere come to a knowledge of the truth. Really the pivot point of this passage, the verse that is at the very heart of what the 13 verses of 2 Peter 3 that we're going to explore together tonight say is verse 9 where we learn that God's made a promise and that he's going to keep that promise and that he's patient and that this patience isn't simply because our God likes to see this world digress. Our God likes to see what Matthew 7 describes as a path that is wide that leads to the way of destruction. He likes to see people who are made in his own image deny his existence and live according to the gratification of the flesh rather than bearing the fruit of the Spirit, but rather his patience is a demonstration that he doesn't want any of those creation, any of those people that he's created in his own image, he doesn't want them to perish. He wants them to repent. That's the heart of our God. That's the heart of a God who sent his son to die on the cross. And that's the heart of a God who will send his son again to claim those who have responded to God's grace through faith, who are willing to yield their will and their lives as disciples of Jesus, who don't just look back at His grace in the waters of baptism, recognizing what occurred when we came in contact with the blood of Jesus, and who don't just look at the present opportunities to minister and to serve and to be light and salt in a world that needs to see that borne out in a way that demonstrates God's faithfulness, but who also will look forward, who will look towards the future, not with a calendar in hand, trying to necessarily know that day nor hour. Jesus says the Son of Man didn't even know that day nor hour, but rather walking by faith, longing with expectancy for something better to come. And it's wonderful tonight to know that while we're going to be spending time in 2 Peter chapter 3, we could spend time in a number of passages. We could go back to the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 3, how the moment sin enters the world, we know before the foundation of the world, God has a plan. And as he speaks to Adam and Eve, and he's talking about the consequences of their action, he makes that promise regarding the Christ, and how that Christ is anticipated throughout the Old Testament. How there are a number of days of judgment, days of the Lord, when kingdoms fell and God's people were taught valuable lessons about remnants being preserved and people being destroyed because of their rebellion, and how all of those things 
including in Jesus' ministry, as he in Mark 13 and Matthew 24 and Luke 21 anticipates the fall of Jerusalem a few years after his ascension into heaven in Acts 1 verses 9 through 11, how that was even a bit of a foreshadowing of what's still yet to come on that great and glorious day when Christ shall return. God's word speaks with consistency. And while we might have questions about what that day is going to be like, we've never experienced that before. We might have questions about what heaven will be like to dwell in God's presence. I think it's important to note that God's word speaks with incredible consistency. We don't have time to explore all of these passages, obviously, in their context. But just note with me that Jesus talks about this. Jesus would not be caught off guard by what the Apostle Peter wrote by inspiration in 2 Peter 3 because it's the doctrine that reflects what Jesus, the Apostle's doctrine, given by the Spirit, consistent with what Jesus himself taught. As he's describing the fall of Jerusalem, he looks forward to something else in Matthew 24, verse 44, as he talks about that reality that the Son of Man would return. It's the same message we hear the angels speak on the mount from which Jesus ascends in Acts chapter 1. It's what Jesus anticipates as he himself talks to his disciples in John 14 and 15 and 16 about not only the coming of the Holy Spirit to guide them into all truth, to give them that they will need to speak as those emissaries or messengers of God, as those apostles, but more importantly than that, looking forward to the redemption that's yet to come. It's the same God who inspires the Apostle Paul, especially in the Thessalonian letters, those Christians who've lost loved ones and are wondering about what's happened to them. When will the Lord return? In the midst of their suffering and struggle in Macedonia, Paul's able to talk to them very clearly, making promises, not only in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, but in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 1 and 2, speaking very clearly about the fact that Jesus would return. It's the same message we see but from the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 9, who ties the return of Jesus to the first coming of Jesus, the incarnation, how, yes, his work was completed or fulfilled, how he went to sit at the right hand of the Father to prepare a place for us, but that he's coming back and that those who are found redeemed will experience life with him forever. It's what John talks about in Revelation. So in many ways, what Second Peter 3 is saying, we can understand in light of the full testimony the full revelation of God's word, what Jesus talked about, what Paul describes, what the writer of Hebrews discusses, what the apostle John talked about. This wasn't the creation of any man. It's not something that a particular writer just wanted to give emphasis to and speculate about. This is God's will, God's word, God's promise. We can rest secure in what it is that's being described throughout all of scripture, including 2 Peter chapter 3, which begins by reminding us in the first couple of verses that these Christians that were being addressed in what's likely Peter's last letter, not long before he's likely martyred by the Roman Emperor Nero, uh, obviously around the mid to late 60s, that first century, you're talking about Christians who would have, of course, known Peter, but who would have also known suffering, longing for something better. They had heard Peter before. He mentions in verse 1 how he had already sent them a letter when he says, Beloved, this is the second letter I'm writing to you. And as you look at those first two verses, if you're in 2 Peter 3 with me, notice all the ways that Peter reminds them of the fact this isn't something new. This is a message they've heard before. Verse 1, I'm writing to stir up your sincere mind by way of reminder. In other words, you've heard this before. 
We've talked about the return of Jesus before. You're aware of that reality. I want to remind you of that. I want you, verse 2, to remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. I think those first two verses show us what the last couple of slides demonstrated. This isn't something Peter's inventing. It's not coming as a surprise to these Christians. But maybe like us, the longer time passes, the more we experience in our own families, in our own health, in our own relationships, we may also ask that question that we see in Revelation 6, 9 through 11, when those Christians, as the fifth seal is being opened by the Lamb of God in the midst of one of John's great visions, they're crying out from under the throne of God, how long is it going to be, O Lord, before we are vindicated, before you avenge our blood, before you make these things right? Sometimes in the midst of our suffering, we ask that question, how long is it going to be? Why are we still having to wait? Don't you know that it's been almost 2,000 years? If Peter writes in the mid-60s, literally within five or six years of 2,000 years since this letter, this inspired epistle was written. And so for him to say in verse 9 that he's patient and he doesn't desire for any to perish, we understand that. But do you think these Christians who first received this would have been able in any form or fashion to have comprehended they would have been waiting 2,000 years or potentially longer for this to occur. And so as skeptics read these words, as they see that adverb quickly applied to Jesus' promise at the end of Revelation, I'm not just coming, I'm coming quickly. What do we do with that? And I think for Christians, yes, we trust in the Word of God. We believe what it is that the Word of God has to say. But perhaps it's time in this for that question. Why does it seem like it's taking so long? And it's easy for us to begin to throw out answers to that, but I think a much better approach would be to ask, what has God himself revealed with regard to that question? And in 2 Peter 3, starting in verse 3, we see that there are four answers given to that question, simply going down through about verse 10. So here he is. Is that me making that sound? Sorry. Here it is. I'll be still. I can't be still. Here it is. As God speaks through Peter regarding that day of the Lord, here he is being able to testify clearly with regard to the question, why is it seemingly taking so long? And if the mid to late 60s, it seemed like it was taking a long time, how would we feel in 2019 with regard to that question? And again, there are some who speculate we missed it. Based on what scripture says, I don't think we could miss it. There are some who speculate, well, maybe God somehow... Let's not speculate. What is it that God's revealed here? And notice that the first thing is he looks back. He looks back at creation. Notice how he responds to this, starting in verse 5. When they, the mockers, those who say somehow God's forgotten, every day's the same. When those mockers, when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water which is basically a way of the content of Genesis chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. When we see that beautiful description of how God makes something out of nothing, He, according to Psalm 33, verse 6, spoke this world into existence. That's what Psalm 8 and Psalm 19 recall as we think about how our God in His power and sovereignty spoke this world into existence. 
I spoke this world into existence, though at the time the world was destroyed. What's he saying? I think he's here tying together not only Genesis 1, 5 through 7, when he spoke the world into existence as the Spirit of God, Genesis 1, hovered over the surface of the waters, but he's also then leaping forward in a way that's going to be made more explicit as we move down into the Noah imagery. He leaps forward to Genesis 6 through 8 and that global flood of Noah how the world was destroyed and eight souls were saved on the ark that God designed by His grace, allowing Noah, who's described in 2 Peter 2, 5, as a preacher of righteousness, to build that ark with his sons and their wives and to go into that boat with all of those animals and be preserved. Here the writer, Peter, is able to look back and he's able to say, I know that you've never seen this in your own experience. You've never seen God interrupt history. You've never seen God create by the breath of His mouth but it's happened before and it's going to happen again. Except when it happens again, it's going to be so much greater. Notice verse 7. By His word, the present heaven and earth are being reserved for fire. The same word that made the world. The same word that equipped, commissioned Mo, uh, Noah rather, to build the ark and to be preserved on the ark. He's brought Peter up, or excuse me, Noah up twice already in these two letters. 1 Peter 3 and 2 Peter chapter 2. Those words, God's words, faithful words, those words are keeping the present heavens and earth. They're being reserved for fire, verse 7, kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. If you know your history, Jewish friends, Gentile friends, if you know the story of God's people, if you've read the Old Testament, if you're aware of the books of Moses, you know that God is able to do this. And so if you believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if you believe in the God of Noah, if you believe in the God of creation, then don't be surprised if that God who acted on his own volition and who spoke those powerful words that made this world and destroyed this world could do that again. That's our God. And he's mighty to save and he's great in every way, but he's also that powerful God who is consistent and faithful in his character. And there you have Noah. And I think part of the reason Peter uses the image is on the one hand, you have God acting in an unexpected way. The world's never been destroyed before. We've never seen a flood like this. And, and yet, in the midst of God's power, there's also grace in preserving Noah and his household. Hebrews eleven seven recalls that by faith, Noah prepared an ark for the salvation of his own household. We see that all demonstrated. And all the while, as Noah anticipates that, not being exactly sure of the timing of all this, but acting in faith, building this huge ship with help from his sons. He's a preacher of righteousness. Think about that burden. How Noah is aware of the rain that's coming. How those in his generation who have turned their hearts away from God are about to see something like they've never seen before. And with urgency, he doesn't just build the boat. With urgency... He tries to reach his neighbors who mock him and poke fun of him. But when the rain starts and the fountains of the deep are broken up and God shuts the door, we know that they were desperate to get in. But it was too late. And here as Peter addressed those Christians and he addresses us through the eyes of faith tonight, I think the urgency here should not be lost. 
that if we really believe that Jesus is coming back, we shouldn't live with this thought, well, it's been so and so thousands of years and so surely it's not going to be tonight, it's not going to be this year, or perhaps we even are so satisfied with the blessings that God's given us that we're instead of thinking about the good thing that could happen if the Lord returns this very hour, we're thinking about our plans. I was studying with a young Christian recently and they were saying, you know, I hope the Lord allows me to get married first, to have children first, maybe to see grandchildren first, maybe to retire. And while we're, we're certainly uh, capable as stewards of our blessings to live life in service to our Creator and seek to glorify Him as, as again, stewards of our blessings, there's something so much greater about the, the, the unity that we'll share with the Father forever in light of that glory. How could we ever think that anything we're waiting for here could compare to what's waiting for us there. Noah preached that righteousness. But notice how Peter continues. How if we read verse 8, echo of Psalm 90 verse 4, he talks about God's perspective. And here we are watching the clock, not only because we wonder how long the preacher's going to go, but we watch the clock because we wonder how long God's going to allow the world to go. And it's easy as the calendar turns or as we experience things in life from a limited perspective to begin to question God. But here Peter reminds us, do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved. The Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. I don't think Peter's trying to lay, lay out for us here some kind of mathematical perspective on keeping time. I don't think that's his point. Rather, his point is to help us to see that God's superior perspective his way of viewing time has an eternal perspective that's rooted in loving kindness and grace don't miss the justice of God let's not overlook the reality of repentance as Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7 13 and 14 encourages his hearers to pursue the narrow way as he reminds them in verses 21 through 23 of that same chapter that not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. We certainly know the significance, the essential nature of repentance and faith and seeking God's will. But we also know that our God's desire is for everyone that he's created to acknowledge their creator, to bow the knee in faith, to loosen their tongue in confession, to obey the Lord Christ and experience what he did. I think that's why the participation language of baptism is so important not to overlook. While it is certainly a command and it's certainly something we need to act on, it's a participation in what Christ did for us by means of the death, burial, and resurrection. It's experiencing what our Lord did. In that great, most climactic moment in human history, we can participate in that. And Peter says, here you are, like Habakkuk, who certainly, as he looked at the injustice all around him, wondered as he lamented before God. In Habakkuk 2.3, the verse right before Paul's favorite verse from Habakkuk, Habakkuk 2.4 that shows up in Romans 1.17 and a number of other passages, the righteous will live by faith. The previous verse, God says to Habakkuk, I'm going to act. I'm going to act. I'm not going to give you a script. I'm not going to set the alarm. I'm not going to tell you when because my perspective is greater than your perspective. And that requires faith, but so does being a disciple. And if we can get up in the morning and pillow our heads at night trusting that God's bigger than whatever trials it is we're experiencing, why can't we also trust that the God who stopped history before and destroyed this world in the flood 
will again act. And if we say, well, it's because we've never seen it before, how dare we limit or question the power of God? Or if we say it's because I don't know exactly when this is going to occur, how arrogant is it for us to assume that we know what's best? Maybe I'm ready because I've experienced suffering and trials in my life, but my neighbor, if given one more week, could have the opportunity to spend eternity with Jesus. I don't have the perspective. I don't have the knowledge to know that. But perhaps God does. And what we do know is that without question, the reason that judgment has been delayed has nothing to do... Here's the third point Peter makes in verse 9. It has nothing to do with God's slowness, but everything to do with God's patience. As Paul had opportunity in Acts 17 to stand on Mars Hill with that Acropolis behind him and all the pagan temples and idols below him, suspended between that reality and speak about the creator, the unknown God who was true, who they should, the Athenians should turn to. In that moment, although some were sneering at the resurrection, Paul made it very clear, almost in passing, that the nature of the God who made all these things and who desires that we seek a relationship with him, that the reason judgment has been delayed is as much about God's mercy and compassion and grace as anything else. It's about people having more time. And I've often wondered, that's not just about me as a recipient of this blessing having time to respond to the word. It's about me as a disciple of Jesus and you as disciples of Jesus having more time to share that word. It's not just about sitting back and enjoying the blessings of hearing and reading and studying the word of God that we get to experience so frequently in a congregation like this, in an area of the country like this, where there are Christians around the world who would give their lives to experience what we get to experience on a daily basis in this community. Not a perfect place, but a great place to live. It's not just about sharing in the blessing and, and receiving that. It's about giving that. God's given us more time. And it's not because I, I might, I've got a list of things I need to get done. I, I've got deadlines that I've missed. There are projects around our house. Christy, please don't say amen. But there are things around the house that have been needing doing for a long time. And I could take a lot of time to tell you about my slowness. The fact that I've just procrastinated. I don't want to do it. I've put it off. Honestly, when it started raining yesterday, I was kind of glad. I needed to mow. I don't have to mow again for a month the way it's looking. Sometimes I don't get it done because I'm slow. That's not God's excuse. He doesn't need an excuse. God's not slow. He's patient. And his perspective is greater than our perspective. And then there's verse 10. And we've talked about the faithfulness of God. God's guaranteed it. And it's not just here in 2 Peter 3.10. It's throughout Scripture. But notice as Peter talks about this reality, he says, the day of the Lord. This sounds just like 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 2. It sounds just like what Jesus says in Matthew 24. He says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. I remember, you know, my dad's sermons when I was a kid didn't scare me very often. But every time he preached on the second coming, which seems like it was far more regular than my preaching on the second coming has been, and I want to do better with that. But I remember as a little kid lying in bed, we had a train that was near our house, and in the middle of the night when that thing went through, being terrified and, and thinking about that sound in that moment, even though I wasn't yet old enough to really be accountable for my actions or to understand what faith ought to look like, it was a scary thought. 
And I think part of what Peter wants to communicate here certainly is the awe and the fear of knowing that day is coming. But for the Christian, it's got to be different than that. Because while we have a godly reverent fear, we also have a longing, an expectation. And the reason I know that isn't simply because that's what I want to be true. If we keep reading, notice that that's exactly what Peter says. The application of this reality. Okay, so long. From our perspective, why has it taken so long for this to happen? And Peter starts with the reality of God. God made this world by his words. And he destroyed this world by his words. And then he goes in verse 8 and he talks about God's perspective being superior to any way we might keep time. And in verse 9, God's patience. This delay is as much about his loving kindness and patience. It's not about slackness or, sn- or slowness. And then in verse 10, we know that God's faithful and he's made this promise and we can trust that what he says will happen will happen. And so what should we do with this information? And while we intellectually know it and are stimulated by it and want to dwell on it and think about it, might speculate as to what exactly that's going to be like, that's not the application Peter makes. As he continues on, Notice the number of times he uses the word look, starting in verse 11. Since all things are going to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? There's the answer, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. There's something far greater than this earth to be longed for and expected. He says, according to his promise, repeating the theme of verse 10, We're looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, verse 14, look for these things. Be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. And then he quotes Paul. Not only quotes Paul, refers to what Paul wrote as difficult and scripture, affirming the testimony of his fellow apostles. What's the point? This isn't just about believing Jesus is going to come back. It's not simply about trusting God's word despite the fact it's been 2,000 years nearly. It's about living in light of that reality. How can I live in light of that reality? I think we need to find ways to intentionally challenge ourselves to think about this possibility on a daily basis. Think about the reality of what it is we desire to do while being stewards of our blessings and making plans and storing up not treasures on earth where moth and rust corrode and thieves break in and steal, but storing up as stewards of our blessings to do the Lord's work. We we have to be stewards and planners and thoughtful about what's going to happen next year. I think that's appropriate. But in all of that, we don't just pray, Lord willing. We live, Lord willing. Lord, if you will, this is what we'll do. But if not, we can't wait to be home. And rather than dreading that, because God, I I know that you've got plans to send your son, but please don't let it happen before spring break. Please don't let it happen before this trip, before this event, before this appointment, before what it is that I think is important. Please don't. How can I, in my limited perspective, ever entertain the thought that I've somehow figured something out that God doesn't know? that I've got something better in my Google Google calendar than God has prepared for me for eternity and for all of those who love the Lord and are called according to His purpose. What does it mean to trust? Again, it's not just about knowing the passages and believing that the words on the page are true. It's about living in light of the reality 
that our Lord, our Savior Jesus Christ will return. And aren't we thankful? I must confess that when I think about that day selfishly, I think about a lot of people I can't wait to see again. And I think about heaven and what that's going to be like. And I think the greatest reality in heaven is simply being in the presence of God and the faithful. But more than anything, I think about all the suffering and injustice and hurt and loss that people right now are experiencing. How all of that will cease for the righteous. I don't know when that day will be. No one does except the Father. But what we do know is that we have work to do. There's a gospel to be cherished. There's a gospel to be shared. There are souls that are in desperate need of hearing the precious word of life. Let's long for that day, living in light of His coming, so that every word, every, every action is a reflection of God's glory and the reality that redemption isn't finished. Even for the Christian, are we saved? Absolutely. As a result of what it is we've experienced, we're being set apart in the present, but there's something greater coming where I'm not going to have to struggle in the flesh anymore. I'm not going to have to experience division or heartache or loss or suffering in any way. There's a great day coming. And the greatest thing about that day is being with the Savior and His people. Are we ready for that day? Are we living in light of that day? If it needs to scare us, let the gospel scare us. But perhaps tonight for the Christian it can encourage us that our God has not forsaken us. There's something wonderful in store for His people. Let us long to be with Him for eternity. And tonight may be the night that we desire to initiate that faith in response to His grace, turning from sin and confessing with our lips that Jesus Christ is Lord, being added to the church, receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit and the waters of baptism, being raised to walk in new life, living as a disciple of His. But as disciples, may we not live in the past. May we not solely focus on the present. May we long for something better. There's a great day coming. Let's long and live for that day as we stand and sing.